Okay, we're getting close to the end of uh, the book we've been studying for just a few brief uh, months. <laughs> and um, we're in chapter 6, almost to the end. We're at verse 17 to 19. So why don't you turn in your Bibles there, First Timothy chapter 6. If you're using one of the, our Bibles that are there in the back of the seat in front of you, it's on page 1413. First Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. It really, it really isn't fair to read this passage, though, uh, without remembering just briefly for a second, even though we've talked about it, uh, the context of what's happening here. You remember Paul's nearing the end of his letter. He's been talking about these false teachers and their false teaching. And in the middle of that, he drifted into... Um, a comparison of them and what they the way they live and what they teach to what's true and he talked about real godliness uh, and then he spoke about contentment in that in that context and then he compared that back again to them and how they and the people who listen to their teaching and go along with the way they think uh, are just people that want to get rich and he warned about that and so he he had gotten into this discussion about money and the intersection of money and uh, a follower of christ's life and then he was charging timothy you know to stay true to the calling that god had given him be be faithful keep the commandment and in bringing seriousness to that charge he mentioned the second coming that christ is coming again and then that led him into what we looked at last week about this great outpouring of worship, spontaneous worship, just looking up to God and who he is and marveling at who he is. And then it's as if that had been like a parenthesis. So then he comes back and picks up again about this whole issue of the intersection of money and our lives. And he says in verse 17, I'll read it. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I want us to just learn together as we look at these uh, three verses and just see what it is, what instructions there are here from God through his word into our lives. I don't look at myself as an expert on uh, money matters, and I'm not going to try to pretend that I am, but I see my job is just passing on to you and helping us to see, well, what does God say and, and uh, what implications does that have on our lives? You notice he used, it starts, uh, verse 17, with the word instruct. He says, instruct those. And I find as I boil down these three verses that there are five instructions here. Two of them are negative. Don't do this. Don't do that. And then three of them are positive. Do this, do this, and do this. So we've got five instructions for our lives in the area of the intersection of our lives with, with money and possessions. The first instruction is this. Don't be proud about what you earn or what you possess. Don't be proud about what you earn or what you possess. Look again at verse 17. It says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Don't be conceited. Don't be proud. 
It's interesting that uh, that problem apparently was present 2,000 years ago, and it's present today, wouldn't you say? And uh, it, it's very easy for, for a person who has more than another to somehow, when their life intersects with that other person and they see their problems that, well, I don't have because I've got more wherewithal than them, a pride can creep in. There can be pride there. Well, it turns out that that pride is actually that tendency to be proud about those things goes back even farther than 2,000 years. Uh, Turn with me into the book of Deuteronomy. I want to show you something there in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is on page 227, very close to the beginning of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Actually, I begin at, yeah, beginning at verse 11. It's a great thing to hear pages turn. You know, there's churches where Bibles aren't used. I still can't understand that. But anyway, here we are. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your 401ks do well, well, wait, okay, that's in there. I think that was a Hebrew notation. And your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Isn't that interesting? You know, God is speaking to the to the people of Israel in those early days. And he's saying that. That there's a danger that when we prosper um, and we work hard and we prosper, that we can become proud and we can forget. And our pride works against our memory. And we forget all the difficulties we came through and who it is that got us through those difficulties. And we forget that it's actually God that enabled me to have the power to work the way I work and to earn what I earn. You see there, uh, verse 18 again. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth. It's God who's behind all of this. Pride with its self-reliance that's blind to God. Uh, results in us not forgetting any way to acknowledge God that he's the one who ultimately enables us to to do anything. And so we forget. We think it's all about us. And God says, that's not right. And this was this was centuries before 
Jesus came. And now there's another 2,000 years after that. And we find then in 1 Timothy 6, God's saying the same thing. He's saying it in 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Don't be conceited. Don't forget that it's God who's enabled you to make what you make and have what you have. It's all come from him. It's not just from you. Don't be proud about that. And don't look down your nose at someone else who has less than you. Pride, pride uh, works in our hearts so that when we see someone who's struggling in a way that we're not struggling, our, our inclination is to think, well, it's their fault. You know, if they just worked hard as I did or whatever, it'd all be different. Well, is that true? Have you been in their shoes? Do you know that for a fact? It very may well be different than you suppose. And if you weren't so proud, you might actually see them differently than you look at them now. Don't be proud about what you earn or possess. It's a human tendency. It's been here for eons. It'll be here until Christ comes back. Beware of it. That's what Paul's saying. Don't be proud. Now, his second instruction, his second instruction, uh, his second negative one is, don't make money your security. Don't make money your security. Look again at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of, of riches here he's saying riches are uncertain so don't fix your hope on them you know in the financial markets there are even things called securities right isn't that funny (laughs) well from one end they might seem like they're securities but actually um, what the bible is saying is that well you better be careful what you put your hope in Listen to James chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. I'll just read it to you. He says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away i heard it said and i wished i remembered which person this was i don't want to take a guess at it because i might be wrong but it was one very very wealthy uh business person in america who if i mentioned his name we'd all recognize it but the story goes that uh someone asked the lawyer that was dealing with the estate after he died they said well how much did he leave behind and the lawyer looked at him and said all of it See there, the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. And so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. It's interesting because the rich man is putting, uh, well, I mean, this one that James is talking about uh, is putting his, his, his hope in his wealth. His, he's made his wealth, his security, but he himself, his very life is in God's hands and doesn't actually depend on that. Amen? Because this is not saying that the rich man's riches are going to be taken away. 
they'll fade away. It's saying that he himself will fade away. So life is more than our, than our riches. Our riches can't even keep us alive. Our lives are, are short and riches also are fleeting. Listen to Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. <laughs> Try to catch the eagle. And, of course, there's many people that say, yeah, but while I'm alive, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my hardest to catch it. And we talked about that actually back when we were uh, looking at some of the verses before around verse 9 in this chapter. But what God is saying to us here is don't make money your security. Money can come and money can go. And uh, if we stop to tell stories, we could tell many of them. People who have put their their trust just in riches and then from in from one reason or another it goes it reminds me about uh deer hunting didn't it remind you about deer hunting i'm very i can very at ease talking about deer hunting in pennsylvania because we have more registered deer hunters in this state than any state of the union isn't that great now you know why i live in pennsylvania No. Did you know they keep statistics on hunting accidents? Do you know what the greatest reason for hunting accidents is? Do you realize it has nothing to do with the guns? It has to do with tree stands. The overwhelming number one cause for accidents from hunters. You know what a tree stand is? For the non-hunters, tree stand is there are little contraptions, some that you put up in a tree, or sometimes people build things and they put up that you can stand in it, and you stand up there and freeze while you hope that a deer walks by, so you can maybe try to get it. So you're standing in a tree. That's why it's called a tree stand, because the deer, as elusive as they are, have a tendency not to look up. So that's why you get up in the tree. Well, guys fall out of those. And they put them up in ways that aren't trustworthy. And, they, and the tree stands fall out. And that is the number one by far reason for injuries and accidents among hunters. It has nothing to do with the guns. It's the tree stands that they're trusting in that aren't trustworthy. And this, that's what reminds me here. Don't make money <clears throat> your security. Don't walk through life putting your trust in something that actually isn't trustworthy. And that leads us to the third instruction that he gives. Now he starts to get positive. He says, well, find, number three, find your security in God. Don't put your security in money. Put your security and find it in God. You see again, excuse me, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Put your hope on God. He doesn't change. He doesn't rust. He doesn't wither or rot. He doesn't blow away in the wind. He's unchanging. And who he is, he is tomorrow and he is the next day, regardless of what your bank account says. God is God. 
God is God. You know, 9-11 is almost becoming something of a distant memory. Um, It really wasn't that long ago. Uh, What, 10 years ago now, almost, this year? But you remember the drastic change that that made on all of our lives? Do you remember how that changed everything? And even in many ways, our economy is still uh, partly in the place that it is because of that. That's still a factor in that. But do you realize that, that the day after 9-11, God was still the same? And if we had the time, we could talk to people who, who said, you know, my, my finances really took a hit on that day. And that changed a lot. But here I am. And I'm walking with God. And God has been faithful. And he's taking care of me. Amen? Our hope, we've got to find our security in God. And there's a, an interesting clause here, a little phrase that it says, but um, fi- don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. He could have stopped right there, but he keeps on going He's, and he describes God for just a moment. He says, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You see here, Paul is not replacing materialism with asceticism he's not saying that um that god is um just going to give us enough to stay alive uh he's saying he uses those words to enjoy you see that he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy it's not like material things and earthly things are evil not at all some of the old, some of the early generations of Christianity got on a tangent with that. And they, guys who were supposedly holy went and lived in caves or sat on tops of poles for days on end. No, 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 no. We've learned since. We've understood from their mistakes. God's created this world and put us here. He didn't put us on this planet so that we could live unhappily. But live, we'd have food and clothing, but be unhappy until we die. Then we go to heaven where we'll really enjoy life. That wasn't the plan. God put us here on this phenomenal planet to take care of it, to find our calling and and taking care of it for him, and to enjoy life in him. That was part of the, the picture is that we wouldn't just be enjoying life we will be enjoying life in him. He's in the midst of it. And we enjoy him in it all. We enjoy it all in him. But you know, what happened then is sin came into the world and evil and it messes things up. And part of the mess is selfishness. Part of the effect of sin is that you and I on the inside are changed. It's not just that there's evil outside that threatens us. There's evil inside of me. That threatens the way I live with God. And this selfishness on the inside makes me tend to want to get stuff to myself and just enjoy it myself. You see, well, my selfishness doesn't change the fact that God has given me these things to enjoy. What my selfishness does is it shortcuts the enjoyment and I try to keep it to myself instead of including other people in it and sharing things with other people. You see, God wants us to walk in a way that probably very few of us have experienced or maybe we we touch it and taste it here or there piece by piece but haven't quite gotten to where we're living it 
all the time this way. God has richly supplies us with all things to enjoy an enjoyment with him. But it comes by, first of all, putting our trust not in those things, but in him. And by seeking not those things, but him. It's funny, when you, when you, when you don't, when you're not so concerned with the things, you might actually wind up getting them. <laughs> because he can trust you with them then. And you're just enjoying him with them and pulling other people into your circle of enjoyment. But we need to find our security in God. We need to trust him. And friend, that begins with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was sent by God from heaven. And he he died on the cross and in his death on the cross, he was satisfying the justice of God, taking care of the problem between you and God. The fact that God needs to punish you for your sin. Jesus took the punishment for you takes it out of the way, and then invites you. Now, come to me, Jesus says. Trust me for the forgiveness of your sins, and let me introduce you now into living the way I meant for you to live in the first place. We can have that. Amen? We can have that. Find our security in God. That's the third lesson. Fourth lesson. Do good. That's it. Do good. Look, look how it goes on in verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. This is great. There's a play on words that Paul is using here with the word rich. Look again back at 17 and look how he's using this word rich. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But on God, who richly, see there, supplies us with all things to enjoy. And so instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works. A lot about being rich there. You see, when we're rich in good works and we do good to other people, we're imitating God. You see, God richly gives us all things to enjoy when i turn around and am rich in good works and doing good to other people i'm actually starting to look like god i'm imitating the one who's been rich towards me but the emphasis here you see is on our doing i think this is very interesting on our doing you aren't primarily supposed to be concerned with what you have but with what you do with what you have. Can I hear an amen? Now, this, isn't the, this is not the message that the world is giving us. It's telling us, keep trying to get. And God's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Not what are you getting, but what are you doing? The question is, what are you doing with your life? Not what are you accumulating with your life do good let's do good and then he has in verse 19 that phrase storing up for themselves well let me read let me read again in verse 18 instruct them to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future Now, what is he saying here? He's saying that by doing good, 
we can actually be storing up. It's like an investment for something in the future. Is that future speaking about like next year or a good return on your investment in your retirement years or what? He's actually talking about a future beyond the grave. And to get a picture of this, Jesus told a parable and I want you to turn there. Luke 16. It's a great story that some find confusing, but I hopefully it'll be a little less confusing after we read it. So Luke 16 verse 1, page 1242. 1242. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called them and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, this is kind of like the Donald Trump of that day you're fired the manager said to himself though hmm what shall i do since my master is taking the management away from me i'm not strong enough to dig i'm ashamed to beg hey i know what i'll do so that when i'm removed from the management people will welcome me into their homes And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first one, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So he's, he's setting himself up for the future, right? He's in this present situation. He's going to get fired. So he's saying, I know what I'll do. I'm going to make provision for myself for later. I'm going to make friends with the people that owe my master money. I'm going to make friends with them so that when I move out of here into that next phase of life, those friends of mine will receive me. That's what he's trying to say. I mean, that's what's happening. What happened now? So his master hears about this, look at verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For this, and then he, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, now Jesus is speaking, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Do you catch what's being said here? Some people get their nose bent out of shape on this when they say, what? I don't understand. Is Jesus saying it's okay to cheat? It's like, No, time out. Look, look, don't overthink this. No, he's even called, you see in verse 8, he's called the unrighteous manager. This is a bad guy. He was doing bad. But Jesus was using his example as an example of this. Living now to make friends for yourself later. And Jesus says in verse 9, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. He says, you've got money Use your money now so that when it fails, that's when you die, they, meaning the friends, will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Do you catch what's being said? He's saying use your money in a way that helps other people. Use your money so that it touches and helps others. And when they get to heaven and then you get to heaven, you're going to have a party. And it's going to be great. There's people who say, hey, 
Come here. You're the one that helped me. And of course, one of the greatest ways to use our money for that is to try to help those people get to heaven. Amen. If they haven't heard, this is why we are, we use a lot of our budget for local outreach and why we use it for world missions. So we find places where people haven't heard the gospel and we use our money to get the gospel to those people. And one day it's, it's, it's going to be exciting. You know, um, just about a month and a half ago, I think it might time flies. So maybe it was a little more than that. I got an email that uh, Bibi Marta had died. And I've told the story about her once or twice, but she's uh, she was an old Sandawi lady that lived all the way back. She remembers the Germans in World War One. You remember me telling that story? She was deathly afraid of water, but got baptized anyway and all of that. She passed away. This lady must have been over 100 years old, but she she died. And and I'm thinking every one of you who never met her, but gave of your money to get the gospel to that place. And then she heard the gospel and she believed what I don't know how it's going to work, but this is what's being talked about. You're going to get to heaven when it's your time. And Bibi Marta is going to be there and she might even have teeth then. I don't know how it's going to work. And she's going to, she is going to be renewed and she's going to say, welcome, my friend. I've been waiting for you. It's great up here because you got the gospel to me and I believed and here I am. Amen. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. Use your wealth to make friends for eternity and then they will welcome you into that eternity. What are you doing with your life that will make a difference in people for eternity? What are you doing with your money and your resources that will make a difference in their lives for eternity? Do good. Do good. And lastly, number five, be generous. Be generous. Look again at verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share generous and ready to share you know um as a pastor i don't see my role um in talking about financial things i don't see my role as to be to get real technical uh i don't see myself as a great financial person i lean on other people to help me with the nuts and bolts of a lot of it matter of fact that's why we have this financial peace university and looking forward to taking it because there's somebody who knows what they're talking about that can help us Um, my job is to look in the scripture and to and to help it challenge us and so much of the challenging of it comes down to our attitudes our attitudes and then some clear things about what we're to do And then there's plenty of details that get worked out on the side uh, and people can help us to understand that better than me. But when it says here, be generous and ready to share, that's showing um, a different attitude in our heart toward money than most of the attitudes in the people around us. We're not just like we've understood that life is not just about getting life is about doing something with what we've got not just getting and accumulating our attitude towards money isn't to be one with our fingers closed but with our fingers open 
And we know that, that, that uh, one of the ways we approach this and being generous and ready to share, one, only one, is the issue of tithing. And we haven't talked about that for a while, and so I just want to hit that for a moment. Some of you are new. Maybe you haven't heard us talk about tithing. What is tithing? Tithing comes from the Old Testament. And the purpose of it was that money would go from the people to the Levites. It had two great purposes. To the Levites who were um, the ones that worked in the temple. So there was a tithe of taken from the people that went to them, that ran the temple and the sacrifices. And those people, because they couldn't be out in the fields, work in the fields because they were working in the temple. So it was taking care of them and the temple. And then other tithes helped the poor. Those were the two main ways the money was used. It's a little tricky when you read the Old Testament and you say, well, what percentage was the tithe? Well, it was at least 10%, but there were periodic tithes, so it could get as well as high as 30. But there was a regular one that was 10. So you have 10%, and that was supposed to be the bottom line of believers in the Old Testament, that they would give 10% of their flocks and 10% of their harvest, 10% of their money if they had it, and they would give it. And that's what we refer to as a tithe. That's in the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament. What do you find said about the tithe? It's interesting. There's In the New, there's no command to not do it, but there's no command to do it. Um, and there's no real example of it. There's plenty of examples of the New Testament believers being generous and sharing their money with each other, um, giving money to their teachers so their teachers could keep teaching, giving the, the idea of, to the poor, helping the poor among them. And so this is the way we think of it, that it's not a command in the New Testament. Um, instead, the giving of New Testament believers is a response to grace. That we just, because of God's grace in our lives and our change of mind of how we view money and the, our possessions, we give because of grace. I see it this way. The Old Testament set the bar. It set the bar at 10%. The New Testament replaces law with grace. The New Testament says, no, you don't have to if you don't want to. But how are you going to? But grace says, see how high you can jump. So let me say it again. The Old Testament set, sets the bar at 10%. Give 10% to God of your, of your income. The New Testament takes away the, the law of it and replaces it with grace and says, see how high you can jump. Just go and jump. And you'll probably jump higher than 10. Now, we just got finished last week our, um, our congregational meeting, if you were there. I think you, you agree with me that we have much to be grateful for. In these difficult financial times, our church is, we're not struggling. And we can praise God for that. Amen? We've been very careful with our spending. We've cut things back and all of that. But we're not, we're not in a bad way. And there are many churches that are. And so we have much to be thankful for. And I applaud you and I congratulate you for what you're doing, what we're doing together. But could I gently, could I just gently give us a challenge? Would that be all right? 
I don't know people's giving. I don't know names. But I do know some statistics. And here's an interesting one. Did you know? No, you don't know. That's why I'm going to tell you. That in our congregation, 10% of the people give 50% of the offerings. And 90% of the people give the other 50%. Did you know that? No, you didn't know that. That's what I'm telling you. So if you boiled our church down to 10 people, one of them is giving half of the budget and missions and everything else. And the other nine are giving the other half. Now, I'm not the judge of people and I don't know those other nine and some of them may not be able to give as much. And so I'm not trying to lay any guilt on anybody that doesn't deserve it. But when I see, when I hear, when the treasurer and the finance committee tells me a, a, a statistic like that, I begin to think maybe out of those nine, those 90%, people don't know about tithing. It could be that you're not tithing. That this isn't a regular thing in your life. That you don't look at this and say, whoa, how can we in this age of grace do less than the Old Testament believers did under the law? 10%, man. That's, I want to give. I want to be generous and ready to share. I'm going to give it 10%. I'm going to start there and then see how high it can jump. I've told this story before. And, uh, but some of, it's been several years to so some of you. Haven't heard it and others may have forgotten it. As a little boy uh, in church, I don't know, I was about yay high, I guess. I don't know, the world looked bigger back then, didn't it? So anyway, my dad would at times be in the group of uh, men and women that would be counting the offering after church. So they'd collect the offering and then some of us kids of the dads and moms that were counting would be in there and that was with the days you remember this part right where they had that machine that sorted coins and they always let us kids you know we got to take them and pour them in the top and it would go and it'd be lots of noise that's why we got to do it and it would set all the quarters would fall here and all the dimes etc so while we're over there playing around with all the coins because you know sometimes it was so much fun if no one was looking you'd get them after they went through and you'd run them through again you know you just keep keep running them through there but while that's going on, they're, ta- they're emptying the, the, the uh, offering plates and looking. And I happen to notice, wow, man, there's a bunch of $20 bills. And I was really impressed. I thought, wow. So anyway, when we're all done that day, we're walking back to the station wagon in the parking lot. And I made a comment to my dad. I said, wow, you know, people are really giving. I mean, that $20 bills, there's a lot of them. And my dad in his typical Air Force officer demeanor said, don't be impressed. I said, what? He says, that's not good, Cliff. You don't understand. That's not good at all. And I didn't, in my little brain, I'm trying to figure out, but $20 is kind of like, what do you mean that's not good? And he stopped. He said, Cliff, people are supposed to be tithing. A tithe is 10%. You know what that is. So you take your income and you do the math. And the math never comes out to $20. It comes out to some funny number. You know, with dollars and cents. He says, then you get your checkbook out and you write a check for that 10%. He says, that's what's good. Those $20 mean people aren't thinking. They're not thinking about their tithe. They're just reaching into their wallet and putting something in as it goes by. And I like to, and, and so I learned to tithe when I was a kid. 
And I praise God even in my kids' life. They're getting older now, and I don't look over their shoulder at stuff. But here and there, I happen to know that they're tithing. It's just in their lives. Whenever they get paid for a summer job, whenever something happens, they, they start it all with 10% goes to God, and then I deal with the 90 It may be that you've never learned that. It may be that your dad and mom didn't teach you that. It may be that maybe we haven't talked about it enough, but that's why I'm talking about it now. Be generous and ready to share. And one of the fundamental starting points of all of that is the tithe. God can help you. He can give you grace. It's amazing. Sometimes when you think you you just can't, believe me, you can. You can. Now, there's one more piece to this verse that I want to finish with. You see there in verse 19, after saying all this, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. And then it says this, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So that they may take hold of life, that they'll get a grip on real life, that that which is life indeed. Not just taking hold of stuff, but taking hold of life. The world says take hold of money. And stuff, and by doing so, you'll really live. God says, you want life? You want to get a grip on life? Well then, don't be proud of what you earn or possess. Don't make money your security. Find your security in God. And do good and be generous. And then you'll have a grip on life. Amen? Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand together as we close. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for, for your love. Thank you for offering us life indeed. Thank you for Jesus Christ who's come and, and set us free from just being trapped in, in uh, the way everybody else thinks, that we can be free from that, not just spend our whole lives getting things, Uh, to then leave it on the outside of our own coffin. Father, Father, help us to hold on to life indeed. Make us people who are generous and ready to share, rich in good deeds to other people, people who have our hope fixed solidly on you and aren't deceived by the, um, the lies of the world as it talks about money. We know, Lord, we need to live with money, Uh, But help us, Father, not to be subject to it, but to be in control of it in our lives. Lead us in all of this, Lord. And I do ask also, Father, that for those who are not tithing, that you would challenge them, that you would nudge them, that you would change them and help them to find the joy of of living in that way. Um, Give us all grace, Father, as we walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you all.